turning uh, your Bibles with me to Psalm 25. Psalm 25. Right now in our Wednesday night Bible study, I'm just walking through the songs, Psalms. We're calling it a journey through the Psalms. And we're taking basically one chapter a week and just digging in and studying and applying to our lives. And it's been a great study. You say, wait, how long is it going to take you until we get to the end? And there are 150 chapters in Psalms. And so we're going to uh, go all the way through them. And we've made it to Psalm uh, 25. I love the Psalms. They are filled with honesty. Uh, Just about any emotion you can name, you can find them in the Psalms. People being honest with God about what they're feeling, what they're experiencing, yet with this reverence. There's always this reverence in Psalms. So people are really hurting uh, their emotions are raw, and they're going through tough times, and they're scared and confused and perplexed, and yet they know that God's the answer. And, and they have this, this reverence and confidence and trust in God. And so that's one of the reasons I love the Psalms. If you're dealing with some sort of emotion in your life, uh, I can almost guarantee you, you can find a Psalm that matches up with that emotion and, and you, you can really resonate with what the psalmists are saying. And so it's been a, a great time for me just to get acquainted with these psalms and study through them and prepare them for preaching. Matter of fact, if you look there in your notes, I've given you, as I have every week, a summary of the psalms. How would you summarize the book of psalms? What what would you say the, the psalms are about? Well, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And so the psalms are collections of hymns, worship songs that were written to remind Uh, the people of Israel, and to remind all of God's people, us today, uh, that God is worthy of praise, He's worthy of worship, whether we're on the mountaintop or in the valley. No matter what we're going through, God's worthy of worship. Amen? And God is worthy of trust. Whether you're on the mountaintop, in the valley, He is worthy of your confidence. Uh, He can handle your life. We just need to put it in His hands. Amen? And so that's what the Psalms are about, and I just love them so much. And tonight we're in Psalm 25, and Psalm 25 is about help for the journey. We're all on a journey, and again, there are times the journey is smooth. There are times when the journey is very difficult. We're going to see tonight that David was talking about a difficult time in his journey, and David is crying out to God, asking for his help on the journey. And we all need help on the journey, and that's what Psalm 25 is about now Let's just read it together, then I'll pray, and I'll make some opening statements about Psalm 25, and then uh, I'll give you some, some thoughts from this psalm. Psalm 25 is a psalm of David. He says, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. By the way, I got excited this past week as I studied the things that God remembers and the things God doesn't remember. And I had a little, just a little spell. And I may have a spell to not telling you about it, because it's good stuff. Verse 8, good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. 
All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord, really fascinating word there, friendship. We'll get to that later. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I'm lonely and afflicted. Notice these emotions here. I'm lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Have you ever been distressed before? Raise your hand. Have you ever been distressed? Well, David's distressed, and he's, he's talking to God about help along the journey because of his distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Let's pray together. Father, we pause to give you glory. We pause to again confess our dependence upon you. Lord, we believe that all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. So as we study your word tonight, I pray, Holy Spirit of God, that you would anoint me as I teach, that you would anoint, Lord, our ears as we as we hear. Lord, that we may understand your word and that we might be inclined to adjust our lives according to your word. So Lord, just have your way. Use this time to change us, to transform us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to inspire us. And Lord, I pray that you would use this time to give us a deeper hunger for your word. And we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace. We ask and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 25 is Awesome, and I love this little summary statement from Warren Wearsby about the 25th Psalm. He writes, This psalm pictures life as a difficult journey that we can't successfully make by ourselves. That's a pretty good description of life. Life is a difficult journey that we can't successfully make by ourselves. And that's what this psalm is about. Now, just a couple of things, technical things about the psalm. First of all, it's a Hebrew acrostic, a Hebrew acrostic. And an acrostic was a poetic element that uh, the Hebrews loved to use with poetry. And basically, they would take a letter of the alphabet and start a verse with that letter. And they would go to the next verse and start with the next letter in the alphabet. So they would start with the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, and then go to Bet and Gimel, Dot, Havav, Zion. They would go through the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, this is an acrostic that uses... A- letters from the alphabet to start as the first letter of the first word of different verses in this psalm. Now, you can't see it in the English. If you, if you knew Hebrew and read Hebrew, you would see that. Uh, but just, this is a, just FYI, this is an incomplete acrostic. It doesn't start with Aleph. It starts with the second word, Bet. It's like starting with B instead of A. And you say, why did they do that? We have no idea. But uh, they started with B, and there are a couple other letters missing. But generally, it's, it's, a, it's just a, a, an outline based upon the Hebrew alphabet and it shows some thoughtfulness in putting it together, and it's a poetic element. Uh, by the way, we've seen uh, two other psalms, Psalm 9 and Psalm 10, and they were acrostics. They use the same uh, Hebrew uh, poetic device. And so just want you to be aware of that. Now notice here, as we think about this being a journey, notice the word way, how many times it's used. Look what it says there in verse 4. 
Maybe to know your ways, O Lord. Look in verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. Verse 9, he leads the humble in what is right, teaches the humble his way. Look in verse 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way. So notice that repetition of the word way, speaking of a path, a a journey. And the word path uh, is used throughout this psalm as well. So he's speaking of a definite journey uh, that he is on and wants God to help him on that journey to make sure he is going in the right direction. Now the context of the psalm, you saw it as we read it, is difficulty. He's surrounded by enemies, verse 2. Look what he says, "...let me not be put to shame." Let not my enemies exult over me. Uh, Verse 19, he mentions that his enemies hate him. He says, consider how many are my foes, with what violent hatred they hate me. Uh, Verse 15, he says, they lay traps for me. Look what he says. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. He will pluck my feet out of the net, the traps that the enemies have set for me. Uh, Verses 2, verses 3, and verses 20 speak of them wanting him to fail. So David is surrounded by enemies. Now again, we don't know which enemies he's referring to here because all through his life David had enemies. He uh, fought a lot with the Philistines. His own son tried to overthrow his kingdom. So he, he was surrounded by enemies most of his life. We don't know exactly what enemies he's referring to, but these are fierce enemies. They hate him. They want to destroy him. And David feels the anxiety of that. And so he calls out to God asking for his help along this journey. And in this psalm, David exemplifies four things, which I think you and I need to exemplify. If we're going to understand that life is a difficult journey in which we need help to make it successful, if we're going to understand that, then we need to exemplify the four things that David exemplifies in this psalm. So, first thing David exemplifies. Uh, He exemplifies a trusting soul. A trusting soul. Look how he starts the psalm. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Now that's a metaphor. What does he mean by lifting up his soul? Well, Hebrews, uh, the Hebrews used another poetic device called parallelism. And they would give you a statement. And then the next statement would define or describe what they meant by the previous statement. So he says there, to you I lift up my soul. Look at the next statement. O my God, in you I trust. And so this lifting up of the soul is to trust God. As a matter of fact, we saw last week in Psalm 24 that the psalmist said, I'm not going to lift up my soul to another. In other words, I'm not going to trust another God. I'm not going to trust a false God or a a pagan God. I'm going to just trust you. So the lifting up of the soul, putting our soul in his hands, is a way for the, the psalmist to say, I trust you. That's what David is saying there. Lifting up the soul is a metaphor for trusting God. And he trusts God in this text um, completely. He says there, O my God, verse 2, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. So the phrase waiting for you is another way to say I'm trusting you. I'm not going to try to solve this myself. I'm waiting for you, God. I'm waiting for your help. I'm waiting for your uh, assistance in this journey. I'm trusting you. I'm waiting upon you. And we see in this psalm some reasons that David trusts God. He had a trusting soul. First of all, he trusted God because of what God remembers. What God remembers. Look what it says down there in verse 5. Fast forward to verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. And so David is calling God 
to remember the promises that he's made. And notice these are ancient promises. Your mercy, Lord, that you promise from days of old. Your steadfast love that you promise. I believe here David is referring to God's covenant mercy and God's covenant love for his people, the people of Israel. Because at the end of the psalm he says, Redeem Israel, O God. So he's thinking about the nation of Israel and how God had promised to raise up a nation from Abraham's descendants and preserve that nation, build that nation, so that one day, through that nation, he could send a Messiah named Jesus. And so the the building and preserving of Israel, which God does in the Old Testament, is all about God sending us a Savior. He wanted to send us a Savior through the Hebrew people. And so David here is saying, you know, I'm I'm the king. I'm, I'm leading this nation of Israel. And if I get overthrown by my enemies, it's very... Uh, possible that that the people of Israel can be wiped out. They can be decimated. They can be wiped off the face of the earth. By the way, you know that happens all the time in human history. There are groups of people who were there, but they're no longer around. For example, like the Hittites. When's the last time you saw a Hittite anywhere? You ever, you ever run into a Hittite anywhere out and about? Uh, they, they were an empire. They were a civilization. They're not there anymore. But the Jews are there. You know why? Because God promised that he would keep them. He promised he would preserve them. He promised he would watch over them. Even though they were faithless, God was faithful. And even through judgment that he sent, God preserved a remnant of people so that one day he could send the Messiah. And so David is appealing to God's faithfulness. God, remember your promises. Remember your mercy. Remember your love for your people. Keep your promises to us. And he said that because he knows God always keeps his promises. Over in Titus it says, God cannot lie. So when he promises, guess what? He always comes through, right? He always comes through. There have been times I've made promises, and uh, I didn't come through because of just negligence or forgetfulness or selfishness or whatever. But God always comes through on his promises. And David remembers that. He said, remember, Lord, the promises you made to your people. He's calling God to remember his covenant promises to his people. And guess what? When God makes a promise, he always keeps it. Aren't you glad? And so David said, I can trust you. I can lift up my soul to you because you remember your promises and you keep them. But David also trusts God, not only for what God remembers, but he trusts God because of what God doesn't remember. Look what it says in verse 7. This is so good. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. So remember me, David's saying. Keep me in your care. Watch over me. Preserve me. Protect me. Provide for me. Assist me on this journey. But please don't remember the sins of my youth. Please don't remember those. Don't hold those against me. Because I don't, I don't want my sins held against me. I can't, I, can't, I can't stand before you, God. I can't come to you for help if you're holding my sins against me. I need my sins to be forgiven. And he understood that God is a God who, when he forgives us, he then forgets our sins. Look what it says over in verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great... So David is, is surrounded by, by trouble. He's surrounded by enemies, enemies, but David also understands there's an enemy within, right? He understands he's blown it before. And so God, take care of my enemies, but also would you forgive me for my guilt, my, my sin? Would you forgive me, pardon me, wash it away? You say, wait, how does God 
forgive? On what basis does a holy God forgive ruined sinners? On the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ left heaven and came to earth, and he died on the cross, shedding his blood in our place, taking our punishment for us, dying for our sins. And so based upon what Jesus Christ has done, we can be forgiven if we embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. When we are born again, we embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. His blood that he shed at the cross is applied to our account and our sins are washed away, right? That's good news. Say, what about David? David lived before Jesus. On what basis was David forgiven? He was forgiven by faith in the coming Redeemer. He believed God's promises that he was going to send a Redeemer to take care of our sin problem, to pardon our guilt. So Old Testament saints were saved by looking forward to what the Redeemer was going to do. We're saved by looking back at what the Redeemer has done. Does that make sense? But we're still, Old Testament, New Testament, we're all saved by faith in God's Redeemer. Everybody got that? Everyone. So we're saved the same way David was saved, and Moses was saved, and Abraham was saved. We're saved by faith in God's promises of redemption that center in the Messiah Jesus Christ. And so David's saying, based upon what you're going to do, and by the way, all the sacrificial system all pointed to the coming redemption, the coming sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Based upon what you're going to do, Lord, based upon the the forgiveness that's going to be purchased one day in the future, would you forgive me? Would you wash away my sins? David knew he was a sinner, and he knew that when God forgave, he would no longer hold his sins against him. God, remember not the sins of my youth. Now let me show you a cool verse. Look over with me in Micah. It's in the Minor Prophets. So there's no shame in going to the table of contents first. If you haven't been to Micah in a while. It's right after Jonah. Look what it says in the last chapter of the book of Micah. Micah 7. Verse 18. Micah 7, verse 18. And this is a a verse that you need to have highlighted in your Bible or underlined or starred or whatever you do to to remember Scripture. Micah says here, closing down his sermon to the people of Israel, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He, God, does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So here's what Mike is saying. God, not only do you forgive your people, but you take our sins and you cast them into the depths of the sea where you will remember them no more. I heard one preacher say it like this, that God those are sins into the sea of forgetfulness and puts up a no fishing sign. Right? So God forgives, and here's the great thing. He forgets of an act of his will. He knows everything, right? But as an act of his loving will, he chooses not to remember. He chooses not to hold the sins of your youth against you because they have been forgiven and cast into a sea of forgetfulness. That's that's good news, right? Let me show you how this applies Uh, to our lives. In his commentary on the Psalms, Harry Ironside, a a godly uh, Christian pastor uh, from the last century, he tells of visiting a very old Christian. And the man was about 90 years old, and he had lived a, a godly life. However, in his last days, he sent for Ironside because, as he expressed it, everything seemed so dark. 
When Ironside arrived, this 90-year-old man's bedside, he says, whatever do you mean? The man said, or Ironside said, you have known the Lord for nearly 70 years. You've lived for him a long, long time. You've helped others. Whatever do you mean dark? The man replied, in my illness, since I have been lying here so weak, my memory keeps bringing up the sins of my youth. You ever been there? You ever had a moment when you just start thinking about the sins of your youth and you just can't get past it? You can't get past your past? And this man had been walking with Jesus for 70 years on his deathbed is thinking about the sins of his youth. He says, my memory keeps bringing up the sins of my youth and I cannot get them out of my mind. They keep crowding in upon me and I cannot help, think, I cannot help thinking of them. They make me feel miserable and wretched. Ironside turned to Psalm, guess what, 25. And he read verse 7, the verse we just read together. And after he read the words, he said, When you came to God 70 years ago, you confessed your sin and put your trust in Jesus Christ. Do you remember what happened then? The old man couldn't remember. Ironside said, Don't you remember that when you confessed your sins, God said, Your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. If God has forgotten them, why should you think about them? And the man relaxed and replied, I'm an old fool remembering what God has forgotten. Let me tell you, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, it's foolish to remember and live under the weight and guilt of something which God has put into a sea of forgetfulness. It's at the bottom of the sea. No fishing sign. So why should we go grab it, bring it up to the surface, and live under that guilt When Jesus died for that sin or those sins and paid the ultimate penalty so those sins could be washed away and remembered by God no more. Why are we remembering stuff that God forgets? Why are we living under guilt when Jesus has cleansed us by his blood. I'm not saying we don't learn lessons from the past. Of course, there are things we've done in the past, and if, if it was the, the wrong thing, we need to learn lessons and, and, and you know, not do it again, right? Learn, learn from our mistakes. Sure, of course. And, of course, there's regret over that. But when you find yourself living under the weight of guilt, and you're a born-again believer in Christ, you are placing yourself, you're placing yourself under that burden because God is not putting it on you. It's either you or Satan bringing it to your mind. But in Christ, those sins have been forgiven. Listen to me. God does not intend for his children to live in guilt. And there are a lot of of believers who are so paralyzed by their past, they just can't get back in the game. They can't serve God faithfully. They just feel like, "I'm I'm another failure. You know, why would God want me to serve him? Who do I think I am? And they're not faithfully serving the Lord because they can't get past their past. And David says, I'm a sinner. I need pardon for the sins of my youth. But I'm so grateful that even though you remember your promises, you don't remember my sins. Isn't that good news? God doesn't remember our sins. He does not hold them against us. And so David has this trusting soul. God, because you remember your promises, because you don't remember my sins, I lift up my soul to you. I'm going to wait on you. You're my help. You're my hope. I'm trusting you alone in the midst of my difficult journey. There's a second thing that David exemplifies here. Not only a trusting soul, but he exemplifies a teachable mind. And this is really one of the major themes of the psalm. A teachable mind. Look in verse 4. 
Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Look in verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches. There's that word again. Teaches the humble his way. And so David here is recognizing his need to be taught by God. He's, he's, he's mentioning his need to grow in his knowledge of God and his ways. Now there are several things I want you to notice here. First of all, notice David's desire. Verse 4, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your past. David desires to grow. David desires to grow in his knowledge of who God is and God's will and God's way for his life, which leads me to this question. You ready? Do you have that desire? Or let me say it like this. Are you still teachable? Do you feel like you still have some things to learn about the Lord, about his word, about his truth? Are you desiring God to teach you and show you more and more and more and more? I've come across people through the years, uh, maybe they've been, been Christians for a long time, and, and they've lost that teachability. No one's going to teach them anything or show them anything, or they you know, they know it all, and 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 they're missing out on a on a rich part of the Christian life. And that part of the Christian life is we can daily be taught by God and learn more and more and more of his ways. Hey, listen to me. God is infinite. That means that God's character and nature knows no boundaries. So I believe, I believe because God is infinite that in eternity we're going to keep learning about God forever. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Like when we get to heaven, we're not going to get to this place where we say, well, I've got God, I've got God figured out. No, he's infinite. We'll keep on growing in our, in our knowledge and awareness of who God is and celebrating that in heaven. And so David has this desire to learn. Are you teachable? Do you desire to continue to grow in your faith? Are you stagnant? Do you know it all? Or are you saying, I've got a lot to learn. I've got a lot I want to learn. Even Paul said, you know, I'm forgetting what lies behind and I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. I realize I'm pressing forward for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, but I'm not there yet. I got some growing to do. Paul said that. Hey, if Paul had some growing to do, how much more do we have some growing to do? Amen? And so notice, notice David's desire. He wanted to learn. Uh, we have teachers in here, people that have, that have taught in different settings. Uh, you know, teachers, don't you, that a, a, a child that wants to learn is, is, is real special, right? It's real special when you have a child sitting there. They, they want, they desire to learn as opposed to those that are just there because they have to be. And David has this desire to learn. Secondly, notice David's dependence upon the Lord. Verse 4, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. In other words, he puts the onus on the Lord. Lord, if I'm going to learn anything about truth, about your will, you got to do it. God, would you be the one that teaches me. So David is dependent upon the Lord. Make me to know. Teach me. Lead me. David knows that God's got to help him if he's going to grow in his knowledge of the Lord. And then notice the curriculum. What curriculum does God use to teach us? Well, look what it says in verse 4. Make me to know your ways. Everyone say ways. Your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Everyone say paths. That was weak. Everyone say paths. Paths. And then he says, lead me in your truth. Everyone say truth. Truth, ways, paths, truths. He's talking about 
who God is, how God works, what God does, what God says. That, that is the curriculum for our Christian lives. The ways of the Lord, the paths of the Lord, the truth of the Lord, these are the path for God's people. So let me say it to you like this. This is a long sentence, but I couldn't think of a way to shorten it. So just bear with the long sentence, okay? Our curriculum for learning the ways of God, the acts of God, the truth of God, and the right path for our lives is the Word of God. I'm saying it again. Our curriculum for learning the ways of God, the acts of God, the truth of God, the right path for our lives is the Word of God rightly understood by the Spirit of God. I told you it's a really long sentence. But important sentence. How do we learn God's path? How do we learn God's ways? How do we learn God's will? How do we learn God's truth? The, the Bible. He's spoken. Here it is. And every time we get into the Word of God, and the Spirit inside us helps us to, to experience the illumination of His Word, to understand it, and He gives us the inclination to obey it. Every time that happens, we are learning God's truth. And so the Bible is the foundational, ultimate, authoritative curriculum for the Christian life. Got that? And if you have a curriculum other than that, then you're missing what God intends to be your curriculum. Now, there are other things. There are Bible studies and there are books which are very helpful. I love to read. I read a lot of supplementary uh, books and material and commentaries and sorts of things. But don't forget, the, the curriculum is the Word of God. Right? It's the authority, the final authority for faith and practice, what we believe and how we live our lives. That is the curriculum. I tell people sometimes, if you have a study Bible, how many have a study Bible? It has the Bible at the top, at the bottom has study notes. Very helpful. I use a study Bible that I love. I've, I bought it in 2008. I was the, it, it came out. It was published in 2008. I was the first person there that morning at Lifeway to buy that. I was so excited to buy that Bible. And that's a little nerdy. I understand that. But, but uh, I knew they were out that day, and it was like a, you know, kind of like an iPhone launch. I was there. Uh, the doors were still locked. I was the first one in line. There was no line. And, and I went in and got this new study Bible, and I've been using it since 2008. I love it. It's a great study Bible, okay? But here's what I tell people with study Bibles. Make sure you're not reading the study notes more than the actual Bible, right? If you find yourself reading the notes more than the Bible, you're missing it, okay? The notes are supplementary. They're to help you and clear up some things maybe and give you some insight, which can be very good. But if you're reading the notes more than the Bible, then... You're, you're walking away from God's primary curriculum for your life. I said it on, in my sermon on Sunday. You, you, you just won't grow in your faith apart from a regular, consistent intake of the Word of God. It's just not going to happen. You will dry up. You will atrophy. You will be stagnant. You will be stale. You will become unteachable. You need a daily diet, consistent diet of the Word of God in your life. Amen? And I... I recommend a, a Bible reading plan to make sure you're reading all of God's Word, just not your favorite passages, right? And so I have a, a, a Bible reading plan called the Discipleship Journal Bible Reading Plan, and I love it. it, it I read in four different places every day from God's Word. Uh, for example, this morning I read in the book of Nehemiah, read Nehemiah chapter 9 about them getting the walls rebuilt and uh, re-entering into their covenant with God. I read uh, uh, Proverbs uh, somewhere around 12, 13, somewhere right in there. I read Proverbs, and I read the, uh, the end of Second Timothy, and I read from the Gospel of Luke. And so every, every day I'm reading from four different places, working my way through the Bible. So I know that every year, uh, 
I'm going to read Leviticus. Right? And every year I'm going to read Numbers, and every year I'm going to read Micah, and every year I'm going to read Nahum, and every year I'm going to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm going to read Romans. I'm going to read Acts and Proverbs and Psalms and Genesis. Every year I'm going, to, I'm going to read all of that. And it's all, good. It's all God's Word, and I need it. And, and as I'm exposed to God's Word regularly, consistently, over time, God uses His Word to, to renew my mind and to transform me further into the image of Christ. And he wants to do that in your life as well. But you've got to be teachable. You've got to have the right curriculum, all right? Got to have the right curriculum. Hey, let me give you just a quick uh, encouragement, all right? Uh, people have their favorite Bible teachers. And they can be famous, well-known Bible teachers. And, and I, I've seen people that they don't get excited, excited about studying the Bible until their teacher comes out with a new Bible study. They hadn't read their Bible in, in six months, but the, their favorite Bible teacher came up with a new Bible study, and all of a sudden they're interested in the Bible again. Listen to me. The Bible is our ultimate curriculum for Christian growth. Amen? All right? Don't, don't wait on your favorite Bible teacher to release a, a shiny DVD-driven Bible study. All right? Those can be helpful. I'm not downgrading those. Those, those can be helpful. You know, men have some guys, they like, women have li- people they like to listen to. But, but listen to me. You need the Word of God personally. You and the Spirit of God in the Bible. You need that daily, personal, consistent intake if you're going to grow in Christ. Amen? All right. thought I'd say that. I feel better. I want to get off my shoulders, you know. And so, notice his curriculum. Secondly, notice David, or third, notice David's confidence in God's character. Look in verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore, based upon his character, he's good, he's upright, therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. In other words, David is saying, you can take it to the bank that God's a good teacher. Because he's a good God. Right? Good and upright. And if you will get alone with God's Word, the Holy Spirit working in you, helping you understand God's Word, God is a really good teacher. And I'm telling you, He will teach you. He will teach you. And you will learn. I've had uh, people say to me before, you know, that sermon, you got so much out of that one verse, and, and I just would never be able to get that out of the verse. Yes, you would. If you read the Bible consistently and the Holy Spirit is, is working in your life to help you to understand God's Word, you will start to see insight after insight, nugget after nugget in God's Word. And when you begin to find those nuggets on your own, it is absolutely thrilling. You, people can't keep you away from your Bible then. I mean, you just can't wait to get to your, your, your place and open your Bible and have your coffee or whatever and, and spend time alone with God teaching you. It's an awesome, awesome Thing And so David is confident in God's character that he's a good teacher. And then notice David's understanding of the kind of person God teaches. Who does God work in to teach? Look what he says in verse 9. He leads the humble in what is right. And teaches the humble his way. Look at verse 10. All the, the paths of the Lord are steadfast Love, he says, and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So God will teach the person that wants to be taught. He will teach the humble person. He will do a work in their life that you can't imagine. The person that's not humble thinks they know it all. Right? 
Right? You're, you're with me? But a humble person says, God, teach me. I need to learn. This morning in my quiet time, I was reading through Luke. And it's in Luke 18. I don't remember the exact verses. There's a parable at the very beginning. It's the next passage. But in Luke 18, Jesus shares the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember that? That, uh, that story? The Pharisee, the religious leader, is praying. He's saying, God, I'm, I'm, I'm just so glad I'm not like that sinner over there, that tax collector guy. He's a wicked dude, and I'm glad I'm better than him. You know, I tithe, I come to the temple, I do all the right stuff, I fast, I pray. I do all, hey, I'm so glad that I am good. A person with that kind of self-righteous attitude won't ever learn a thing from God. But what does the tax collector say? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He wouldn't even lift his eyes up to God. He knows he's a sinner. He knows his only, his only hope is God's mercy and grace in his life. So he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when someone comes with that posture, hey, my only hope is you. You're the only reason there's anything good in my life. I need your help. I need you to teach me. When you come with humility like that, God will teach you in ways that you can't even imagine. But God doesn't teach the proud. Matter of fact, the Bible says he, he, he veers away from the proud. He don't, he don't want to draw near to the proud. But a humble, contrite heart, God loves to draw near. And God loves to do a work. And God loves to teach. And so you need to evaluate yourself. Am I humble or am I proud? Do I think I know it all or do I recognize I still got a lot that I need God to do in my life? And so David has this understanding of the kind of person God teaches. So David exemplifies very quickly a trusting soul, a teachable mind. Third, a reverent heart. A reverent heart. Look what David says in verse 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? That question means, what is the man like who fears the Lord? Or, What are the characteristics of a man who fears the Lord? And then he answers that question in the next couple of verses. And so these next four things are answers to the question, what are the characteristics of a God-fearing person? All right? And here are the characteristics, the realities of those who fear God. Okay? Number one, guidance. People that fear God receive God's guidance. Look what it says in verse 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? What are are the characteristics of his life? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. So when when God has someone come to him who fears him and honestly desires God's guidance, God gives it to him. Now, let's talk about the will of God for a minute. Because the will of God is, is, there are different, different ways the idea of the will of God is used in Scripture. For example, one of the ways we see the will of God used is to speak of the, the sovereign will of God. In other words, that's just what God desires to happen, and that's how it's going to happen. You know, God's orchestrating everything, right? He's in control, and he's orchestrating everything in this world and in human history and in the universe so that one day when the dust settles, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So God's at work. It's all going to work out exactly like he wants it to. He's not up in heaven wringing his hands saying, oh, I, I hope this person comes through, or I hope this happens, or I hope that happens, or oh, what if they win the presidential election? What am I going to do then? No, God is not, God is not panicking in heaven. You understand that, right? He's sovereign. He's in control, he's got a plan, and he's working it out. That's his sovereign will, all right? That's, and only God knows that, how it all is going to be woven together for his ultimate glory. 
but there's another way the, the phrase the will of God is used in the Bible. And it's to speak of the moral will of God. The moral will of God. And that means God tells us what he wants us to do. How to live in a way that is upright. For example, uh, his commandments, like love your neighbor. That's the, so I don't have to ask the question, should I love my neighbor? Why don't, why, don't, why don't I ask that question? Why? Talk to me. He's told us to, right? He's already said it. Why ask him a question about something he's already said? Uh, or pray without ceasing or rejoice always. Or these commandments in the Bible, right? Forgive each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. We don't have to wonder, should I forgive that person well, yes, you have to ask God, should you forgive? He's already told you, Ephesians chapter 4, forgive, right? That's the moral will of God. It's, it's his will for your life that is clearly detailed and outlined and presented in Scripture. It's, it's his commandments, right? Okay. When most of us think about the will of God, we think about the particular will of God for our lives. That's another way we think of the will of God, all right? In other words, should I take this new job? Should I go to this college? Should I marry this person? Should I go to this church? Those kind of questions. And when we talk about the will of God, that's what we're most interested in, right? God, I want to know your will for my life. And there are all kinds of books about the will of God, discerning God's will, his particular will for your life, and different approaches and different ways that people say you need to discern God's will for your life. That's an entirely different Bible study. I did six weeks one time on the will of God, and maybe we'll do that again sometime down the road. But... um, but here's the deal. Here's what I want you to hear, hear from me. God will not reveal his particular will to you if you ignore his moral will. That makes sense? In other words, if you're just blowing off his commandments in the Bible and just ignoring what God's already said, why would you expect him to give you some insight into your life? Right? Hey, God... Um, should I take this job? It's almost like God would say to us, uh, why don't you go take the rest of the Bible seriously and then come back and let's talk about the job. In other words, fear me, keep my commandments, and if you'll do that, I, I'll show you the way you ought to go. I'll guide you. I'll make sure you're on the right path. But if you're ignoring my moral will, don't come to me looking for a particular will. Does that make sense? I think a lot of people do that in their lives. You know, like, you know, a lot of people, when they reach their college years, they fall off the map of Christianity. They, 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 they just, hey, I, I, you know, I, my parents made me go, and I'm in college now, or I've started a career now, and I'm out on my own, and I'm, that's not for me. I'm just not, it's not my thing. I'm too busy, maybe one day, but it's just, you know. And, and, they, and they stop uh, being involved in local church ministry. Uh, they're not walking with the Lord. They're not talking with the Lord, and they're just doing their own thing. Which, by the way, that doesn't have to happen. Some of the best spiritual years of your life can be those young adult years, by the way. Uh, but a lot of people say, I'm going to just do my own thing, and maybe one year down the road I'll get serious about the Lord. So they're out there doing their own thing, and then it comes to a particular will decision. They meet some person, and it makes their heart beat fast. And, and they go to God, should I marry this person? They've been ignoring God for four years, and now they say, God, show me if I should marry this person. We think that looks like from God's perspective. Why would you want to know what I have to say? You've been ignoring my word for four years. 
Now you want to know what I have to say about a, a situation in your life? Who is the man who fears the Lord? A person that fears the Lord, who takes his moral will seriously, who seeks to obey God and walk with God and talk with God. That person can rest on this promise that God in some way will guide him and make sure he's on the right path. Does that make sense? All right. I didn't intend to go into all that, but that was extra. That was extra. But I think it's important to understand that if, if we're not God-fearing, we should not expect God to guide us. That's a lot quicker. I could have said it a lot quicker, right? That was a lot more concise. Uh, but just some thoughts about the will of God. Now, uh, next, characteristics of those who fear God. Guidance, soul, prosperity. Look what it says in verse 13. Who is the man who fears the Lord? His soul shall abide in well-being. Uh, some translations say his soul shall abide in prosperity. Notice here is talking about soul prosperity, spiritual prosperity. All right? Not... You know, you, you watch these TV preachers, and it's like, hey, if you, if you serve Jesus, then you'll get, that, you'll get that promotion at work, and you're driving that Toyota Camry around, and you know you want a BMW, and so if you serve Jesus, you'll get that BMW, and, 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 if, you, and if you sow the seed into my ministry, it'll come back to you tenfold, and, and all this crazy stuff, which is called the prosperity gospel, that basically, if you serve Jesus, your life will just get instantly better. Well, nobody told Paul that. Come on Sunday, you're going to see what happened to Paul for obeying Jesus. He got into all kinds of trouble, right? It was worth it, all right? It was for the glory of God. God used it. But following Jesus doesn't necessarily mean things are going to go better in, the, in our lives. Doesn't mean we may... You know what? In our day and time, we may get fired for following Jesus. Instead of getting that promotion, I read an article today about an officer in the Air Force who had his Bible open on his desk, and he is now in hot water, and they're determining what to do with this man because he had his Bible open on his desk at work. And they had these 30 anonymous complaints about his Bible being open on his desk in the Air Force. And uh, that's the world we live in, right? And so we need to understand that, hey, when you follow Jesus, it may make life a little bit harder, Okay? But it's worth it because it's for the glory of God. And you're serving Him and you're walking with Him in the midst of those challenges. But notice this. He's speaking of soul blessing, soul prosperity. There's a wonderful verse. Write this in your notes. I think I put it in your notes. Ephesians 3. I'm sorry, Ephesians 1 verse 3. Ephesians 1 verse 3. Where he says that the Lord has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And so if you're saved, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, every spiritual blessing that's available is yours. How awesome is that? And you read chapter 1 to see what the different spiritual blessings are. Redemption, freedom, forgiveness, all these things. They're yours in Christ. And so he's saying, when someone fears the Lord, they experience God's soul blessings. His, his blessings, his prosperity of the inner person. Third characteristic of those who fear God, legacy. Look in verse 13. His offspring shall inherit the land. God often connected promises about land with faithfulness. If you're faithful, you'll inherit the land. And so this idea of inheriting the land is, is faithfulness. And here's what he's saying. If a man is faithful and he inherits the land, God rewards him with, with land or with possession or inheritance, then his, his children and grandchildren benefit because they have land now based upon their father's faithfulness. That's just a way of saying 
when someone is faithful to the Lord, their offspring are blessed by that. Listen to what it says over in Proverbs 20, verse 7. As a matter of fact, turn there with me. Proverbs 20, verse 7. I love this passage. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. I'm telling you, the the greatest gift you can give your kids and your grandkids is not you know a vehicle or 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 some material thing the greatest gift you can give your kid or your grandkid is to love Jesus that's the greatest gift you can give them i'm i'm telling you if 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 you have a parent or grandparent that loves Jesus you're a rich person amen legacy and, and the next intimacy Those who fear God experience intimacy. Look what it says in verse 14 of Psalm 25. The friendship of the Lord is for those who what? (laughs) The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. And He makes known to them His covenant. Now that word friendship in the Hebrew is a very interesting word. It's the word for couch or cushion. And it was used uh, to speak of intimate conversation. Right? Two people sitting on a couch together talking. You know, when I, go to, when I go to Starbucks, if I'm with Claire and we get a coffee, we may sit on the couch together, right? Because she's my wife and I don't mind being close and cozy with her because she's my wife, right? But if I just go there by myself and I'm just taking, you know, my, my iPad in to do some studying or some reading or something, and I get a coffee and there's some stranger on the couch, I'm not going to sit by the stranger. I'm looking for a table by myself, right? Because, it's, you know, it's, it's a little intimate to sit on a couch by somebody. And I'm going to sit by that dude over there on the couch that I don't know. I'm going to find my own table. Uh, it speaks of intimacy, closeness. And he says, he says, the friendship of the Lord, the closest, the intimacy of the Lord is for those who fear him. So when you fear God, when you take him seriously, when you're serious about the things of God, you obey him, walk with him, talk with him, love him. When that is a reality in your life, you will experience a closeness with him uh, that, is, that is really special. An intimacy with him, like you're sitting on the couch with him. And so intimacy is a blessing, a characteristic of those who fear God. Let me show you one more thing, and we'll be through. I'm going long. We're going to close right now, just a few moments. In this psalm, David exemplifies a trusting soul, a teachable mind, a reverent heart, and focused eyes. I love what he says in verse 15. Look what he says in verse 15. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. So I'm, I'm going through a difficult journey, a difficult time. I'm surrounded by enemies, but my eyes are on the Lord. He will rescue me from their traps, from their, from their plots. So why does David want his eyes upon God? Well, let me give you five things and we'll be through. My eyes are upon God, first of all, because I need his help. Verse 15, he will pluck my feet out of the net. My eyes are upon, are, are upon God because I need his presence. Look in verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I'm lonely and afflicted. So David's saying, I, I, hey, I feel like I'm all alone. I need your help, God. I need your presence in my life. And so I'm, I'm looking to you because I want you to draw near to me in the midst of my difficulty. My eyes are upon God because I need his forgiveness. Verse 18. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. So David's saying, not only do I want you to take care of the evildoers, I want you to take care of the evil within me. I want you to cleanse me of my sin and my issues. My eyes are upon God because I want to live with integrity. Verse 21. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. And my eyes are upon God because I care about God's purposes. Verse 22. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. In other words, big picture, David's saying, Hey, we're under attack. Would you preserve this nation so that you could one day do what you said you would do? Send a forever king. 
Send a Messiah who would come and take the sins of the world on his shoulders and die for the sins of humanity and, and, and extend salvation to those who place their faith in him. And so David remembers the big picture purposes of God. I want God to save me, so he'll save Israel. And he'll keep his promises to one day bless all the nations of the earth through the nation of Israel. I care about God's purposes. And so David says, my eyes are upon God. I'm going to, in the midst of my difficulty, in the midst of my trial, I'm going to fix my eyes upon the Lord. That's where my eyes belong. There's a wonderful story over in Second Chronicles about a king of the southern kingdom, Judah. His name was Jehoshaphat or Jehoshaphat, however you want to say it. How many go with Jehoshaphat? Raise your hand if you're Jehoshaphat. How many say Jehoshaphat? Anybody Jehoshaphat's in here? A couple. Okay, okay. Um, it just depends on, I say it both ways. Just, it just depends on how I'm feeling that particular day. Um, but Jehoshaphat's a king of the southern kingdom, and this mighty army comes to uh, overthrow uh, his, his capital city and his army. And it's really a, a huge army, and he knows the odds are against him. And so he gathers all the people together. He gets the priests, he gets the ark, and, and he, he gathers them all together. And he leads in a prayer service. And he prays this. He says, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And God gives them a very powerful victory over the enemy. But that's a great prayer to pray. When you're going through difficult times in life, God, I don't know what to do. I don't have the answers. I don't know what tomorrow may bring, but my eyes are on you. I trust you. I want you to draw near. I want you to help. My eyes are upon you. I know that my life is in your hands. And so David exemplifies, even in the midst of difficulty, a trusting soul, a teachable mind, a reverent heart, focused eyes. So again, this psalm pictures a difficult journey that we can't successfully make by our Sales. We need to follow David's example to trust God, to pursue God, to fix our eyes upon God in the midst of our hardship.